We just prayed basically this prayer together. It's, it's printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, last week I preached on two words, and I'm foolish enough to just preach on another two words today. And so uh, this is our, our, our passage. I'll read. This is the, the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, this has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. If you weren't able to join us last week, you missed uh, our first sermon on this new series, Working Our Way Through This Prayer That Jesus Taught His Disciples to Pray, as we work our way through the Lord's Prayer. Again, last week I, I began this series by asking, like, how should we think about this prayer? Most of us know it, if not all of us know it, even, even by heart. But what's, what's the way that we're to think about the Lord's Prayer? And so I, I offered this metaphor of bread, if you remember that from last week. The Lord's Prayer is like bread. It's, it's basic, it's elemental, it's simple, and yet it's also, at the very same time, nourishing and rich and vital. The Lord's Prayer is simple, and yet it contains the very heart of the gospel. It contains, it, it is the epitome of the gospel. And again, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, I think represented in this room, we have maybe a, a different or unique experiences of this prayer. We so easily pray these words with empty words. We pray these words, and it just becomes routine. And yet to grasp this prayer is to come time and time again to behold Jesus. Every petition in this prayer is like an arrow that points to him. When we pray this prayer, we come to see Jesus, and we also come with him before our Father, as we looked at last week. Again, the Lord's Prayer is in two places, it's in Matthew, and it's also in Luke's Gospel. And then in Luke's Gospel, uh, it's a different setting, a different context, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think that's interesting, because Jesus answers their request with this prayer. Jesus doesn't say, well, that's the wrong request. Jesus doesn't say, well, pray however you want to pray. He doesn't say, you're, you're overthinking it. Just pray whatever comes to mind. Jesus says, that's a good request. This is how you're to pray. He helps us. He gives us the words to say, and I, and I think we would be wise, of course, to heed his counsel. We would be wise to listen to Jesus. And so this prayer teaches us how to pray, but I think it also helps us formulate what prayer is. It helps us to think about prayer rightly, and that's a good place to begin when we think of the Lord's Prayer. I think one of the questions of the modern man and woman is, does prayer work? Now, I think that question's always been in play, and yet it's a very modern question because we have a particular uh, obsession. We have a value of pragmatism and of practicality. Does prayer actually work? 
But this prayer reminds us that we come to God with petitions, not compulsions. Prayer isn't ordering God around, but it's making our requests known to him. And so if God is infinitely wise and good, and we are finite, we don't see the whole situation. Furthermore, our desires are bent, we're prone to folly, then it makes perfect sense that God would grant some requests and he would refuse others. And so it's a complicated question. Does prayer work? What does that mean? Uh, C.S. Lewis has a, a kind of quirky essay that he once wrote on this very question. He's, he's dealing with, with kind of modern opponents who are asking, well, can't we actually get to the bottom of whether or not prayer works? And so he's interacting with uh, the, the potential experiment that you would have to see if prayer works. And here's how that experiment would go. Let's say you have two hospitals. And so in the one hospital, you have a team of people who, were, who will pray for all of the patients in that hospital. And then you have another hospital, and no one will pray for those patients. And so to the end of the experiment, you will see which patients fared better, those who were prayed for or those who weren't prayed for. But of course, Lewis says, but that's not prayer at all. He writes this, simply to pray prayer is not to pray, otherwise a team of properly trained parrots would serve as well as men for our experiment. So what's the heart of prayer that Jesus gives us to pray? This 22nd prayer that Jesus gives us as a gift. He gives us the heart, doesn't he? The content of prayer. God's glory on the one hand and our good on the other. Six petitions, six things that we ask God to do. Six requests that we make. Three of those have to do with God's glory. We pray for God to act on his name and his kingdom and his will. And then we pray for our good. For God's provision, forgiveness and protection. But before we get to the heart of prayer, what we pray, we need to meditate once more on who we pray to. Again, last week we looked at what it means to pray to God as our Father. That's where you have to start. That's essential, absolutely essential. This week is the second part of the address. We pray to our Father who is in heaven. This address toward God is important. This isn't a pleasantry. This isn't to whom it may concern, uh, or, or I hope this finds you well so we can get to the body of the address. No, our Father in heaven isn't just a throwaway line. It gets to the heart of the one to whom we pray. And so two points we'll look at this morning. Our Father in heaven, what does that teach us about the one to whom we pray? What does it teach us about God? And then we'll close looking at what it means for us. All right, so first of all, when we pray to our Father in heaven, we are addressing not only the God to whom we have access, the one where we find intimacy, the one who is for us. Here's the kicker. Here's where in heaven takes us. We also pray to the God who is able, the God who is perfect in power and glory, the God who is mighty to work, the God who is mighty to save, the, the God who can intervene. And so in heaven, our Father in heaven has to at least communicate that he is above us, that he is outside us, that he is not one of us. To address God in heaven is to remember, it is to orient our prayers to the God who has all authority and power at his command. He is the ruler and creator of all things. The, the, the big word for this is that God is transcendent. 
He transcends us. He is beyond us. He's not just a big version of me. He's not just a big version of you. God in heaven is not a God that we can shape and conform into our own image. We cannot domesticate God because he is a God who is in heaven. It means otherness. It means that we can't control God. We can't manipulate God. He is other. He is in heaven. Now, it's at once an obvious point, right? Uh, Christian prayer is directed to the one who is outside of me, who is powerful and who is sovereign. And yet, on the other hand, we have to continually be reminded that God is outside of me. That God is not made in my image. That he is powerful. He is sovereign. To pray to our Father in heaven protects us against our natural affinity for idols and idolatry. John Calvin made the insight, one of his, his more popular insights, which is, which is so helpful and enduring, that the human heart is this perpetual factory for idols. So you think of a factory in China producing little Buddha statues they're going to ship off to, to TJ Maxx or, or World Market or Pier 1, right? That's our hearts. Our hearts are, are, are this assembly line of idols, an assembly line of where we think we'll find our identity and purpose and goodness. But we can't do that. Why can't we do that? Because our God is in heaven. Think of the psalm, Psalm 115, this, this beautiful, um, really, really funny contrast between idols of wood and stone. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not hear, uh, or ears but do not hear, eyes but do not see, And then it contrasts those idols with our God who is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Again, prayer isn't manipulation. Habakkuk 2, a passage we looked at just a few months ago in our series in Habakkuk, where the prophet writes, you know, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Okay, now here's the contrast. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That might be the perfect companion passage to praying our Father in heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Instead of approaching prayer with anxiety, instead of approaching prayer with this kind of desperate stress and urgency, remember God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. God is not just a projection of our personalities. He's not just a projection of our character traits. Next week, we'll pray that God would would hallow, he would would make and keep his name holy. He'll be sovereign. He is sovereign. And so when we take the address that Jesus gives us in this prayer, we have two really important sides of one coin. On the one hand, to confess and pray to God our Father, that should fill us with comfort. It gives us the boldness of children to draw near to God. It reveals the heart of God toward us, and that's an indispensable, precious reality. But on the other hand, on the other side of this same coin, we're also filled with reverence toward his majesty. To pray to God our Father, that speaks to his goodness and to his grace. To pray to our Father in heaven speaks of his greatness. And so when we pray to our Father, we are comforted with the intimacy that he has toward us. When we pray to our Father in heaven, we're confronted with his infinitude. 
And you have to keep both of those, don't you? If he's our, our, our father without majesty, then maybe that's too familiar, it's unholy, it's too close. And yet, uh, if, if, if it's the other way, right? If he's just great, if he's just filled with, with awesomeness and majesty, then that just produces coldness. There'll be no intimate relationship. No, we have to hold both unfathomable love and immeasurable loftiness. We have to hold those together. Again, prayer doesn't mean all that much if it is merely providing us a, a therapeutic benefit of, of warm feelings and, and inner peace. It's one thing, even the starting point of Christian prayer, to begin with the knowledge that we have access and intimacy with God our Father. But what makes prayer prayer is quite simply knowing that God can do something about our situation and that God can work in our world. And this is what we confess when we pray to our Father in heaven. You can imagine the scenario of being trapped in a burning building. You're stuck in the corner, you're down low trying to hold on to whatever oxygen you have left and, and a firefighter breaks through all of the flames and through all of the rubble and he comes and he envelops you and he says into your ear, I am with you and I'm for you and I see what you're going through. But if that's all he does, that's a terrible firefighter. No, we need a firefighter who maybe can say those things after we're rescued. Right? We need someone who can do something, someone who is able to save, who can rescue us, who can overcome the situation that we're in. So we need and have a God who gives us access to his throne, but we need a God to act from that throne. And that's exactly who Jesus says, that's who you address, our Father in heaven. So the first thing it means about God, right? the first thing this line communicates is that our Father is one who is powerful. He's one who is able, but it also communicates something else. It communicates that God is present for us. Now this is a little bit more of a complicated point, but I think it's a really essential point to grasp because one of the things that we need to do is realize that God in heaven does not mean God who is distant it does not mean God who is far away, and in fact, I think it means the complete opposite. Now, why is this complicated? And, and here's the fair warning. This will require some heavy lifting, but I think it's worth it, because I think we need this reality. So let me ask you the question, where is heaven? Where is heaven? I mean, the simple answer is heaven is where God is, and then God is where heaven is. That's the simple answer, but where is heaven? If, if you took off on a rocket ship, would you eventually get to the pearly gates if you kept going up and up and up and up? The answer is no. The answer is no. So you see how complicated we're already at, right? Where is heaven? It's where God is. God is where heaven is. So where is it? Now, Jesus, of course, ascended into heaven, which is how the Bible speaks of it. We're ascending and descending. But I think with others, that's just a visual uh, parable for us. Jesus keeps ascending until he's hidden by the clouds. In heaven can unfortunately mean for many of us our Father who is far away, but I don't think that's right. In fact, as much as heaven means not of us, which is good, it also means a closeness that we can barely grasp. Heaven is the name given to where God is, but it is not some far-off distant galaxy. Remember, God is a spirit. He has no body. And so the categories of time and space are creaturely categories that do not apply to him. So just marinate on that and let that kind of blow your mind for a little bit. How we even speak of time 
and space. And so the way that heaven is communicated to us, more more than any other way, is that God's nearness and availability are right here, but he is not right here. He is not pinned down into a specific place in our world. Heaven communicates on the one hand, God is not earthly, and yet heaven does not communicate that God is far. God is outside of us, but he is not from us. Now, I get this is abstract. This is, this is, a, this is a little bit complicated. Not, and this is complicated for me. I'm trying to grasp what does heaven mean because I'm not heavenly. I'm earthly, right? But then I found, I found a passage this week that I think communicates this idea. And this is from Ephesians 4. Uh, the context here is that Jesus ascends to heaven and he gives gifts to his church. And this is what Paul writes. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And here's where we're getting more specific. In saying that Jesus ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? His descent is the earth, his his, his years of ministry among us. So he who descended, who came down from heaven, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Paul describes Jesus descending to us from the place of God's presence. God the Son descends to us. He descends to the earth, but then he who descended ascended far above all the heavens so that, not that he is distant from us, but that he would fill all things. So let me try to break this down for us. You would think that Jesus could get no nearer to us than when he was walking among us, right? First John 1 says that he who we, we saw with our own eyes, who we touched with our own hands, but Paul says, no, no, Jesus could be nearer. He ascended, he joined God the Father, and by ascending, he now fills everything. He now fills everything. He's even more present to us. Now, that's God the Son, but this, of course, applies to God the Father. Our Father in heaven is both far above us. He's not part of the creation, but he fills all things. When Jesus is said to go back to heaven to be with his Father, his distance, his withdrawal, those aren't negatives. They alert us to something crucial. Jesus is present like God the Father is present. Now, I understand that's that's a heavy lifting, It's hard to track here, but but God is above us and he's outside of us, and yet he's closer and nearer than we can ever grasp. That's the point. God is above us, he is outside of us, and yet he is closer and nearer than we could ever grasp. He is transcendent, but he is also imminent. Now, why does this matter? Why did I just trudge through that material? Because we don't pray to a distant God, we pray to one who's closer than our skin. Remember why Jesus ascended to fill all things. We pray to a God who is outside of us, right? And yet we don't pray to a God uh, found in us despite how near he is. And God is not in the creation. He is outside of us. He is outside of his creation, but he fills everything. And so when you're praying, God, are you even listening? God, do you hear me? I think Jesus' reply would be, are you praying to our Father in heaven because he is nearer than you can imagine? He fills all things. We can speak of God being near, 
We can speak of God being available. We can pray to our Father, and yet we know right from the, right from the start, he is no creaturely Father. No, he is our almighty creator God. He fills all things. So that's what we learn about God in heaven, is that he's, he's powerful, he's present. God, are you listening? Oh, he's closer than you will ever fathom. And so what does this mean for us? This is our concluding point. This is, this is what we'll wrap up this morning, looking at what it means to pray to our Father in heaven and what that means for us. Just as much as last week, praying our Father and all that, 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 that work we went through talking about Jesus, our brother, who brings us into the presence of, of the Father, just as much as that begins the prayer staked on the gospel, so to pray to our Father in heaven is just as much staked on the gospel. In just a few minutes, we'll confess the Nicene Creed together, this ancient creed that, that really all Christians around the world confess together of, of innumerable different traditions, all confessing the deity of the Son, all confessing that Jesus is fully God. And so we will say together that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is begotten of the Father uh, uh, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things things were made. Stop there. And if we stop there, you and I could never pray to our Father in heaven. Stop there. You and I could never pray to our Father in heaven if the Son remained there. But of course, the creed continues. He is the one who for us in our salvation came down from heaven. Jesus is heaven come down. Jesus is heaven on earth. One theologian is called the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, taking to himself our humanity. He is called that the Son's journey into the far country, which I just think is the most beautiful phrase. You think of the Son on this palace estate who leaves, right? He goes to the far country. And why does he do that? He does that to to become the servant. It's a journey where he became the brother of you and I. He took his place with the transgressor. He became our redemption from death to life. One of the early church fathers, Athanasius, who was the star of the council that drafted that creed, he said that Jesus came to, not to make a display. Jesus did not come to dazzle his beholders. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. In other words, he descended for those who cannot ascend. How is it that we can pray and be heard by the Father in heaven? It's because the Son of heaven provided a way in his own flesh. So just as much as God our Father is staked in the gospel, so is praying to our Father in heaven, because the Son of heaven has brought those two together. Secondly, to pray to our Father in heaven, it raises our thoughts and our hearts and our eyes to heaven. Like right from the start, we see that we were made for more than just this earthly reality. And so when we come to God with all of our needs, and we should, we have to go to God with all of our needs. Right from the beginning, we are addressing a God who who we are reminded of as we are confessing that he's our God in heaven, that we were created to be with him. We were created for more than this. And this is consistent with all of Jesus' teaching, especially from the Sermon on the Mount, which is where the Lord's Prayer is found, right? Seek first not health and wealth. Seek first not anything in this world, but seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom you were created for. 
We were created to dwell with God. Dallas Willard communicates the story of the, the Hall of Fame baseball player Mickey Mantle, who was, uh, he died in his early 60s uh, after a life of hard living and hard drinking. And, and he was quoted as, as saying, uh, you know, I would have taken a lot better care of myself if I knew I was going to live this long. And Willard says, you know, Mickey Mantle gives us a profound lesson. How should we take care of ourselves when we are never to cease? And so Jesus here is showing us what it is to live in light of the fact that we will never stop living. That we were created to dwell with God. In a couple of weeks, we'll explore what it means to set our hearts on God's program in heaven as we pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so to pray to our Father in heaven is this reminder of what we were created for, life with God. And similarly, and this is really, really important, this is where we'll close, to pray to our Father in heaven is also a confession of displacement. It's a confession of who we are as pilgrims and exiles. Martin Luther used this phrase when he talked about praying to our Father in heaven that we are like children who are far from home and feel the ache of homesickness. It's a wearying world, isn't it? It's a wearying world. We feel the heaviness of this world every day, and if our hearts are set on heaven, if our hearts are, are regularly in communion with the presence of God and his goodness and glory, um, then I think rightfully so that the heaviness of this world begins to take a toll. We live in a culture that hates righteousness and celebrates wickedness. That takes a toll. It's wearying. It's exhausting to keep losing those you love. And the older you get, that number just keeps rising. It's hard to watch our own physical and mental health slip. Maybe harder to watch physical and mental health slip in those we love. It can be so discouraging to feel homeless in this world, and I think there is a very real sense that if we do not feel homeless in this world, then we have stopped to realize what it is to pray to our Father in heaven. And when that happens, we become tempted to settle in and call this world home. No, we pray to our Father in heaven to set our hearts on him, to remember what we were created for, it's also essential to remember we pray to our Father in heaven, not my Father in heaven, but ours. This is a prayer of community, too. We're with these words that we say together week after week. We are reminded of what we were created for, not just me, myself, with, with my own personal relationship with Jesus, but as a people and as a community. And so this gathering is kind of like an immigrant exiled community spurring one another on with the promise of home. There has to be an element of our gathering together where part of what we're doing, part of our exercise here is we are the gathering of exiles and so we come to sing songs of heaven and they will sound a lot better in heaven but they're good enough now. We come to hear a word of forgiveness and a word of Christ, a word that is found in no other place in this world but in Christ's church. And we eat a meal from heaven that reminds us while we're not home yet, we will be because the journey has been guaranteed because the Son of Heaven has come and will come again to bring us home. As the old hymn put it, that the church is one foundation, and this is the, the last words that I'll say, we gather together to remember that from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride.
With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we need you to shape us according to those four words. To remember the status that we have as your children, the access, the intimacy. To remember that you are the God for us because of our elder brother, Jesus, and the work that he has done to gather us, to bring us with him before your throne of grace. Lord, help us to be shaped by praying to the one who is in heaven, the one who is above us, the one who is outside of us, the one who is perfect in power and glory, and yet the one who fills all things, the one who is near. The one who, when we ask, God, are you hearing this? The answer is yes, more than we can imagine. Lord, that we would remember that even with this this simple prayer to our Father in heaven, that that is our destiny, uh, that we are those who are created to dwell with God. And what is it to dwell with God than to be those who dwell in heaven? And so, Lord, would you shape us according to to this prayer that we pray to you. Always fighting against our our impulse to just go through the motions, always fighting that impulse to find our identities here on earth. Lord, would you reorient us according to your word, according to your work that you have accomplished for us in your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy, perfect name we pray. Amen.